All right. Well, let me just give a little introduction about myself. Um, uh, you know, I was I, I grew up in San Diego and uh, circumstances led me to go to the United States Military Academy for my undergraduate education. Um, I got a bachelor's in science there in engineering and uh, went off into the Army because you had a five year obligation. Well, the Army reached out to me, or at least West Point did, come back to be a faculty member. So um, uh, within eight years, I got my master's in applied mathematics, went back to West Point to teach. Um, things went well there, and they've asked me to go get my PhD, which I did. So I got my PhD, ended up teaching there for over 20 years. Spent a little over 29 years in the Army, uh, retired as a Brigadier General, just meant I spent a lot of time in the Army. Um, and I, I had an opportunity to do a lot of things. Um, and then after I uh, retired from the Army, I spent nine years at an independent school, a private school, we call them independent now, um, and uh, uh, Trinity Valley School in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, and then I had a chance to come to La Jolla Country Day School here in San Diego, which is my hometown, which worked out well. And here I am now. And uh, what, what drives me is the, the idea that our colleges and universities are well respected around the world, but our K through 12 institutions are not. Um, and we, we could probably argue till the cows come home why that's the case. But what I started looking at is why is there such a difference in the image? Is it, is it deserved? And I don't think it is, but there are some things we can do better in K-12 education. And what we can do better is we need to figure out how to give teachers time. At the university level, when I was teaching there, maybe I had three hours a week, at most six hours a week that I'd be in the classroom. The rest of the time I could be working on projects or trying to figure out where the boundaries of knowledge were. And that was kind of nice because I kind of knew where the world was going. When I got into K through 12 education, you work so long, you're in the class, teachers are in the classroom all day, going to sporting events, going to fine arts events. You don't have a chance to recreate yourself. Um, and we, the way the world is moving so rapidly, we, we got to keep up. If we're not, um, we're, we're not going to position students uh, to be able to solve tomorrow's problems. We're going to be able to position students to solve yesterday's problems. In fact, there's a great quote by Wayne Gretzky you know, when he was asked why is uh, why he's such a great hockey player. He says he never skates to where the puck is. He always skates to where it's going to be. Oftentimes in education, we skate to where the puck was. And, and so this is the work that really needs to get done. And so the question really becomes, and it's a question for you, for me and everyone is, what is the puck in education and where is it going? And there's lots of different ways we can look at it. One of the ways to look at it is, is by a guy named Matt Ridley. Matt Ridley's at Oxford and uh, he's done some work on how civilizations advance because that would be nice to know. And they don't advance because we're getting smarter. They advance because we share ideas. And it was brilliant people 10 years, uh, 10,000 years ago. And, and so, but what happened over time is we share ideas. In fact, uh, there's a great paper and I, I, I encourage everyone to Google it or uh, look at it. It's called I, like the letter I, space pencil, I pencil. And what it is, is the fact that no one on planet earth can build a number two yellow pencil by themselves. It's too complicated. Uh, between the lacquer, the metal ring, the graphite, the, the wood, and everything else that goes into it. 
but together we can. Just a little, you know, yellow pencil. Um, and, and so we, we kind of need to take that into consideration it's because we share ideas, we advance. But how civilizations advance is a nice question. The better one is why they advance. Um, and that was really answered by Richard Feynman. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize in physics, discovered the O-ring on the shuttle when they had tr uh, trouble with it. And his idea is uh, the reason why civilizations advance is because in every generation, there's hopefully people like you that uh, uh, question, that leave the door open. What I mean by that is they leave some uncertainty in their lives. And that uncertainty could be as simple as something like, do you, do you believe in God? And if someone says, absolutely not. Well, they've closed the door. What they should say is, oh, you know, I'm an atheist, but there could be a chance. There's a possibility. And I will continue that search. Same way if you're very devoted and you believe absolutely there's a God. Um, no question about it. Well, then your faith doesn't grow anymore. So this concept of uncertainty that we're not fixed in our mindsets or not fixed in our ways is such an important way to continue to grow. And that needs to be a big part of education. Because right now, education is kind of aligned with the concept of training. And, um, you know, you do your multiplication tables, you learn long divisions, or you, you, you learn how to differentiate uh, uh, functions. What you're doing is just algorithms, and it's, you're kind of setting your ways of how to do it. You're not thinking about better ways of doing it. You're just trying to memorize how to do it to get through a test. Um, and so what we need to do is give students more real-world problems um, where there's a human issue or an environmental issue or there's a social issue, um, and, and that needs to happen. We need to create more uncertainty in our schools because training that we normally do prepares people to solve problems they've already seen before. Education gives you the confidence and the competence to solve problems you haven't seen before. Um, and so that blend of training and education is so important. And so as, as we continue our journey of what do we need to do for the future of education, we go back to that puck is what is the puck and where is it going? Well, I'll say that uh, we need to look at what ear we are. Remember, we had the age of flight. You probably learned about that in school. Well, uh, we're not in the age of flight, but we're still flying more than ever. It doesn't mean it's, it's over with. It just becomes, becomes ubiquitous. We expect to be able to fly at uh, any time. Um, we've, we've left the information age, but information is more important than ever. So we've left the information age. What age are we in now? I claim that we're in the age of biology. And how we really determine that is there are people um, uh, that actually look at what problems are being solved and where is the, the supercomputer, what problems supercomputers are working on. And a lot of the problems they're working on are protein folding uh, or biological problems. So that's kind of tells us where age we're in. The real question that you and I need to think about it is what age are we going to? Um, and I claim that we're going to the connected age. What are the skill sets, what are the attributes we need in order to be hyper-computed, uh, hyper-connected? You know, for instance, right now, I was just driving down Highway 8 here in San Diego. Nicholas says, hey, are you going to join us for a Zoom call? And immediately I, can, I, I pull up my phone. I, I know I had downloaded the Zoom app, never have used it before on my app. And now I'm, I'm talking on this, uh, on this call. And I think, you know, it's amazing how connected we can be. Well, if we're connected, 
what does that really mean? What are the responsibilities? What are the privacy issues? What are the security issues? What does it mean? What does it mean for all of us who can, at the touch of a, a button, can reach out and touch people? Well, there's, there's psychological issues. Um, there's some advantages that come with it. There's also the, the issues that, that you, don't, you don't get downtime um, because you're always connected. Um, and you don't have time maybe to reflect or grow. We also have these privacy issues. Um, I, I claim that if I can connect with you, somebody can join in this conversation and we might not even know they're joined into this conversation. Um, and, but it's the same kind of technology that we use when we transfer money over the wire, our financial system, um, or when we share ideas that need to be confidential. So privacy is gonna be a, an enormous issue in the future. Are you gonna trust? In fact, can you trust what I'm saying right now? Because when I was growing up, 50 years ago, everything was peer reviewed. So someone would write an article or write a book or a chapter in a book, and it'd be reviewed by experts in the area. And they would verify and validate that what's being said is true. Now that doesn't happen. So as you listen to me, no one's verifying or validating. It could be absolutely craziness. Um, so when you turn on the news or listen to NPR or read an article, or, uh, and I'm not much in the social media, but if you go on the Facebook or whatever platform you're, you're using right now, you cannot help it because you're human that you're going to take it in. And whether it's true or not, it's going to become part of it. And it's going to influence you, uh, whether the argument is on the um, tariffs or the arguments on immigration or on health care, you're going to be hearing perspectives that might not be true. And they're going to influence who you are, and then you're going to influence your friends. And so this connected age might be an opportunity, or it might provide a world where you and I don't know what the truth is. Yet we're being influenced by it. We're going to make decisions by it. We're going to make family decisions and financial decisions through that. Now, that's going to be a very difficult time. So what I'd ask you first to do is figure out what you read and why you read it and how it influences you. Now, do you read the Washington Post? Do you read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Economist, the Week? Um, how do you get your information? Because that information is going to be digested by you and then influence what, what you do. Typically, what happens today is, is, and I'm seeing it happen more and more because as we move into this connected age, is that social media is used as artificial intelligence to know what you want to read, and then they give you more of it. Um, and then you read a little more, and then you get a little more of it, and you, and you read it. And what happens is you get into these information bubbles where you're only seeing the world through one lens. And that lens is what you enjoy to read. might not be true. It might be distorted, but that's what you get. And if you go into social media, you're starting to get influenced by what your friends like to read or what they know. So now you've created an information bubble that's the size of you and your friends, of which none of it has been verified or validated to be true. Um, and so now we're moving into this hyper-connected age where we are not as, I would say, cosmopolitan. Uh, as we used to. We're not as diverse in our thinking because artificial intelligence is giving us more of what we want. So when, when I go on um, uh, to my news platforms, let's just say it's Apple News. Apple News sees what I read 
and gives me more of it. Um, and let's just say I want to bash something. Let's just say I, I, I believe in um, uh, having uh, less trade with, with companies around the world. I, I want to I, I uh, nationalism and isolate, uh, and isolate ourselves. Well, I get more of that. And now I get reinforced. I, I want more of it. I think it's true. And tomorrow, I think it's even more true. And what we're seeing happen in our communities right now, where uh, people are right or wrong, like if I'm a Democrat, I think the Republicans are a bunch of idiots. But if I'm a Republican, I think the Democrats are ruining our country. Um, and why have we become so divided is because we're living in these, in these bubbles and we become convinced that we're right. Uh, no one else sees the world that, that we do. And, and so as we move into the future, what, what I'd encourage you to do is how do you truly become more diverse? How do you accept ideas and tolerate um, different opinions and keep that window of uncertainty open? What Richard Feynman says, have some uncertainty. You know, no matter what political party you are, how do I say, well, they might have a point of view or a perspective that I need to study. How often do you hang around with friends or families or colleagues who think just the opposite of you do, or might have different experiences. Maybe they've lived in Europe or the Middle East or the Far East for their whole lives, um, where you've just lived in, in maybe the, the States. And so this hyper-connected age is going to require us to do more work to keep ourselves properly informed as we, we continue this journey forward. Um, it's also gonna require you to understand your responsibility to continue to learn. I think Stanford right now, when you sign up for their undergraduate program, they guarantee that you can come back every three, four, five years to get a refresh uh, because your education's not gonna end after your undergraduate work or even your graduate work um, as you go forward. And so it's going to require us to continue our education throughout our lives. That means I got to backtrack in K through 12 education. I need to give kids an opportunity to be responsible for their own education um, because it used to end after a you know, period of time. But now education doesn't end at all. And the perfect example of it is I'm, I'm kind of an old person, 65 years old, uh, when the pandemic happened. I started to do research about RNA viruses. You know, why are RNA viruses such a problem? Why do they mutate so much? Why don't they have air correcting capabilities? Um, and I needed to know that because if I'm running a school, I, I need to figure out how the disease is transferred. Is it transferred by fomites, by touching things? Or is it transferred by large droplets? Do we, um, uh, do we need in some sense to clean rooms or ha uh, door handles in a way? Or is it transferred by aerosols, by the fine particles? Um, and so what it required me to do is talk to aerosol experts at the Scripps Oceanography and, and to figure out how all those pieces come together. Um, and uh, a few months ago, I had no idea how to measure the flow of air through a facility or through a classroom or wherever you're at right now. Uh, I'm not too sure if you're online or I guess you're not online, you're, you're at home or whatever it is. But I started learning about CO2 monitoring. And uh, if you're outside, the parts per million of CO2 is about 400. If you go inside in a typical classroom, we can get up to 1,200 or 2,000. Means the air is not being circulated. If air is not being circulated, then if someone has a disease in the room, the virus flume or viral cloud will be dense enough to transfer the disease. 
So I had to start doing research on, oh, what's the parts per million of CO2 in a room that tells me that the ventilation is such a level, you can't transfer a respiratory disease like COVID. Those are the kinds of habits that we need to instill in our, in our students and to everybody in the, in the community. You know, why do we wear masks? Or what's the benefit? What's the data? Should I read the New England Journal of Medicine to get that information? Or is it done in, it's in the Wall Street Journal? Um, or is it in The Economist? How do I keep myself informed as we keep moving forward? How do the new viruses work? Um, so you have these mRNA viruses versus the old time viruses. And let me just give you a, a two minute lecture on, on kind of how those work. Uh, the RNA virus, as you know, the, the DNA is, is kind of the blueprint. Um, what creates, the, what transfers the blueprint into, into proteins, you can think of it as that, is, is the RNA. It's kind of the transporter of the information. Well, um, if you look at COVID, why it causes a problem is they have these spike proteins on the side of the fatty tissue on a virus. And those, those fatty tissues, I mean, that spike protein connects to a receptor in our cells because a virus can't recreate itself on its own. It's actually considered to be dead or maybe pseudo alive. So it has to get inside one of our cells and how it gets inside our cells is through an ACE2 receptor. And the ACE2 receptor is kind of an interesting uh, attribute of some cells, not all our cells. I mean, when you get COVID, you don't complain about your elbow hurting because the cells in your elbow don't have an ACE2 receptor on the side of them. They tend to be in your colon and your, your lungs, your heart and your respiratory system. And, and so what the new vaccines do is they create the ACE, I mean, they create the spike protein or something that has the same characteristics as spike protein. Um, so when they inject that mRNA into you, it creates a spike protein, your body thinks it's being attacked, and now your immune system can react to that and practice and rehearse. Um, and, and that's how that system worked. Well, the old viruses didn't work the same way. You actually put a virus in you, and they call it a dead virus, but it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's already dead, but they'll put a virus in you. And, um, and that virus has been tweaked a little so that it can't reproduce even when it gets in your cells. But your immune system recognizes it, and so your immune system rehearses. So you can see in both cases, what vaccines do is allow your immune system to rehearse. So if an actual virus comes in, it is in a position to identify it sooner and then have the capability to attack it. Because right now, you need about a thousand particles of the virus in order to overcome a typical immune system before you'll get sick. So if it's smaller than that, your immune system will knock it out. If it's bigger than that, um, you're gonna need an immune system that's been rehearsed or, or, or trained to, to attack it. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an example of how the world has changed. You know, as, as I've grown in age, I don't think as fast as I used to. I can't remember as much as I used to. Like I forgot about this meeting and I apologize for it. So it's required me to work even harder as I've gotten older. I read more. I block off three hours every night to read about what's going in the world, why it's happening. 
but I try to read to understand how do Americans look at it? Well, how do the Chinese, how about the Koreans? How about over in the Middle East? I, I try to get more perspectives. I, I love it, you know, I was on a, on a call the other day with someone from England, um, trying to get their perspective of what the world is looking at and why is it looking that way? Um, and then I try to try to anticipate what's gonna happen in the world. And, and another good example is, you know, in the Suez Canal, and that ship that's blocking it right now, it's causing about $10 billion worth of financial disruption around the world because the ships can't get through. And if they go around the horn, it adds about nine days of travel if they go around the, the horn. Uh, but, but think about the Suez Canal. How is that canal going to work in the future? Um, and who's thinking about that problem right now? Because the large ships that can get through the Suez Canal can't go through the Panama Canal because they have locks there. Because um, you actually have to go over a kind of a, a, a little mountain area and then back down again. Um, but the big ships that do all the heavy lifting aren't Aren't, aren't going through, can't go through there. But there's a place in Colombia where they can. They could build a sea level canal through Colombia that could be hundreds of feet wide um, uh, that ships could go through that. Um, but for that to happen, you need stability in the region. And as you know, the FARC and the Colombian government have been going at it for years. Well, how do we create that stability? If we can, we can create a sea level canal through Colombia. And if we create that sea level canal, canal and cut through the earth because the Caribbean and the Pacific are at different heights, it would drain, it would need to be dredged, um, and it would change, at least in the United States, how we get our products. Um, because right now, there's no deep sea ports on the east coast of the United States. And I give you this kind of examples that there are some interesting problems out there that the people who have uncertainty, who doubt themselves, who question, don't ask why, but why not, can really make a difference in the world. And, and so my message to you as we move into this connected age, figure out who you're gonna be connected to. <laughs> you know, whatever your sources are for social media or your friend group, whatever your friend group is, expand it. Um, you know, reach out to your professors at, at your college, get to know some of them real well. See what kind of products uh, or problems they're working on. Why are they working on those problems? What are the implications of it? What do you need to know in order to understand that problem? Um, uh, who are they talking to? What do they read? Who do they listen to? Um, uh, because you have the opportunity to be connected to everything. Um, and maybe when you're connected to everything, you're actually connected to nothing. Um, so you need to be careful about that.